0: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said,
1: Let there be light.
0: And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said...
1: Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens.
0: So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And God blessed them, saying,
1: Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth.
0: And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said,
1: Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds.
0: And it was so. And God made beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said,
1: Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, And to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food.
0: And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation.
1: The word of the Lord.
2: How are you? Okay, let's try that again. How are you? That's a little better, a little more lively. It's summer. How many of you are out of school already? (laughs) Right, Johnny's out of school. That's excellent. How many of you get out of school in the next week? How many of you graduate in the next week? A couple. A couple timid hands. Okay. Bless you. That's a big week. Um, Would you join me as we pray together? Dear God, we do come and offer ourselves to these words we stand in. Uh, In the millennium of, of people who have celebrated first the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost who was sent that your good news would spread throughout the world in all the languages of the world and we know that we can hear and respond because of the Holy Spirit. So we invite the Holy Spirit even to what we do this morning as we look at Genesis 1. We offer ourselves as we come from the weeks we've had and the mornings we've had and the things we're anticipating and ask you to inbreak into our cluttered minds and hearts, and maybe even the distractions or burdens we carry, that we might hear you and know of your love for us this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. I want you to think for a second. How many of you can make something? You don't even need to raise your hand. Think about something you could make, right? Could be a drawing, coloring, paint, pottery, a garden grow. Cookies. Everybody got something you could make. Okay, park that. We're going to come back to it. Okay, but think about something you could make. Who here in the last few weeks has watched um, either the Obi-Wan series on Disney Plus or Stranger Things? Raise your hand. Stranger Things. Woo, everybody. Okay? Right. Okay, think about those two series. Some of you shake shaking heads. You're, you're just given a gift. You have something to do this afternoon. Um, <laughs> Think about those two series. How did those start? You, you clicked on them in the last couple weeks. How did they start? Anybody remember? Both series. They start with a recap. Last time, right? They take you back. Stranger Things, a few years ago, was the last time that series had a new show. Obi-Wan takes you all the way back to really like 19, late 1970s, for those of us who first saw Star Wars, way back then. Because right? they, they want to provide an orientation and a context for what the story is. They're going to pick you up in the story, but first they have to place you in the bigger story. Right? Otherwise, your sense of equilibrium and understanding doesn't work. If you don't know what happened before, you don't know if you watch Stranger Things, who Elle is, why she's in California. If you don't know what happened before, you might not know who Obi-Wan is. I bet everybody here knows who Obi-Wan is. We need to know where we are in the story. right? Otherwise, you don't know where it's headed. The, the storytellers that wrote those series want to make sure you understand why you're here, and we are asking and want to know those stories for ourselves. Why am I here? Where did I come from? How, do, how does all my life and the stories I see around me fit together? W- why am I here? There's a Scottish philosopher named Alistair MacIntyre, and he says this. I can only answer the question, what am I to do? Which really what he means is how am I to live? if I can first answer the prior question of what stories do I find myself a part? I can only answer the question what am I to do and how am I to live if I can first answer the prior question of what stories do I find myself a part? What story are you and I a part of? What story gives us context and beginning and answers those big questions? You and I are constantly both asking and being given or invited to think this is the story that will explain your life. You could look at the front page of a paper tomorrow and read an article and think, what story are they trying to tell me I'm a part of? Am I a part of nature and the natural earth? Is is that my only story? Am I I a part of a story that's just a collection of individual stories, This is sort of what we grew up in the West hearing? Am I a part of a story that's just a part of power struggles, that all the stories are really just power struggles? Am I a part of a story that's just economic stories? Really, it's just about who has the means of production or economics or capitalism. Is my story just a part of geopolitical stories? This summer and fall, as Johnny just said, you're gonna be in the book of Genesis. And in that study, you're gonna ask and answer these questions. What story am I a part of? All these other stories fit into the overarching stories, what we're gonna argue. There's a meta-narrative And you're gonna use two fields of study to understand these stories. First, theology, the study of God. And then second, anthropology, the study of humanity. Now, if you've heard me preach here before, you know, I often invite you into the prayer of St. Augustine, which is to ask God to help you know him and help you know yourselves. And guess what? That's the study of God and the study of humanity. That's theology and anthropology. And that's what Genesis helps us understand. Why? Because we want to understand what story we're in, because we want to know how to live. Again, Genesis is inviting you into how to be fully human. And to begin, we're going to spend this Sunday and the next two Sundays looking at Genesis 1, this text you just heard Richard and Caroline read. It's a profound text. It's a beautiful text. It's disturbing and joyous and tragic and hopeful and illuminating, all of Genesis. Genesis 1 began with this familiar phrase. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Has anybody heard that phrase before? You said it before Richard and Caroline did. Do you remember where you said it? In the Apostles' Creed. The oldest creed we have in the church. We believe in one God, Father Almighty, who created the heavens and the earth. We remind ourselves of this every week if you say the Apostles' Creed. That's the story we're in. So we're going to spend several weeks again in Genesis. And this morning I just want to do three things to sort of kick it off. First, I'm going to make some broad comments about Genesis the book because it's a really important book. This passage is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible and I love Genesis. So I'm going to make some broad comments about the book. Then I'm going to make a few broad comments about Genesis 1. These will be brief. And then I'm going to give four important takeaways from Genesis 1 on how this text can inform and bless your summer. Okay, some four more specific applications. Johnny, I'm sure, will recommend books you might want to read as we go through Genesis. Again, you're going to be in it now through, really, till Advent. So I'd encourage you to pick up a commentary by a man named Bruce Waltke, W A L T K E. Dr. Walke was one of my Old Testament professors. He was, if you're familiar with the New International Version of the Bible, he helped translate the New International Version. He was the humblest man, and he loved Genesis. And he fell in love with Genesis after, in a new way after he translated the New International Version. That's how profound it was for him. And then he wrote this commentary. And you'll, it'll help you catch some of the joy and power. Okay, first, Genesis the book. A few orientative comments. First, Genesis, the book, is oriented around two calls, two calls, Genesis 1 through 11, God is calling the world into being. Okay, so that's Genesis 1 through 11, God is calling the world into being. Then second, Genesis 12 to 50, God is calling a special community out of that world to be his people and his witness in the world. So two calls called into being and then called in to be a special people, to bear witness. The substance of that call, like think about if you're a kid here and your your parents call you on a Saturday morning. They're probably calling you because they're gonna give you chores, right? At least in my house or the summer. Oh, dad's gonna lay out, here's the things that have to happen this summer. That's not what God's doing. This call is the substance, is the promise of God. God is calling something into being, first the world and his people, and then he's committing to them in his promise. He's creating and committing to them. And those two things are intimately stitched. They cannot be separated. So there's a call, there's a promise, and the mode we hear about this call and promise is a story. Genesis is a story. It's not a myth. Or a fiction. It's nonfiction, true, like the stories you and I tell each other all the time about your lives. The authors of Genesis, both the human and divine authors, are telling stories to help us understand where we come from and help us orient our lives. This story, then, is not theory or abstract imaginings. It's told in a real world, in real life. With all the richness, joy, darkness, and hardship you and I experience. This is not an abstract text that just drifted from the sky into Israel's hands. The authors told and pieced these stories together so you and I again would make sense of the world. This is Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar. This text, the book of Genesis, is not an abstract statement about the origin of the universe. Rather, is a theological and pastoral statement addressed to a real historical problem. The goal of Genesis is to find a ground for faith in this God, the same God you and I believe in, that Israel believes in, when our experience seems to deny the rule of this God. Again, the goal is to find a ground for faith in this God when your and my experience seems to deny the rule of this God. Genesis then is a ground for faith In God, when our more immediate historical experience is against it, the affirmation of Genesis is this. This God can be trusted, even against contemporary data, which may include all the sickness and loneliness and even unemployment that is every human experience of abandonment. Have you ever felt like your immediate historical experience doesn't affirm your faith in God? then this book is for you. Because the authors felt it too. And they didn't create a theological abstract. They told you a story as a pastor to say this God can be trusted. We believe in. we've handed it down literally for centuries so you can believe. So I would like to suggest that the goal of our summer and the invitation I'm going to make to you this morning is to grow in courage. The goal of your study of Genesis is courage to live bold and trusting lives in that promise of God. Same God, same promise made to you and me. So that's Genesis the book, an invitation to courage. Second, then some organizing thoughts about Genesis one. This is the first chapter of this important call and book. How shall we consider this amazing text today? Four quick thoughts about Genesis one. First, the questions and answers of Genesis 1 are profound. What questions are being asked and answered here in chapter 1? Genesis is about who and why, not how and when. Genesis 1 is about who and why, not how and when. This isn't just me, this is St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas. For those of you in England, this is J.I. Packer. Genesis is about who and why, not how and when. It's not intended to give a specific scientific answer to some of the questions we might bring to the text. Instead, again, it's addressing the big questions. Who is God? Who are we? What does it mean to put faith in him when our immediate historical experience might beg that question? And it does seek to answer our questions about purpose and value and identity and dignity and even what it means to be male and female. So the questions of Genesis 1 are profound. But let's remember what questions it's trying to ask and answer. Second, then, the structure of Genesis 1 is beautiful, and if you get the commentary of Dr. Waltke, you will see the beauty of this text. It is a work of art. What Richard and Caroline just read, and the reason they read it was so you could hear sort of the cadence of it. And God said, and God said. It's a poem, and God said. It was evening, it was morning. And God said, it was evening, it was morning. This was constructed, it didn't just throw words together. And in this beauty, there are really two things happening. First, as God creates, he forms, he makes forms. He makes time, right, night and day. And then he makes sky, he separates the land from the sky. Then he makes land, then he makes water. So first he creates by forming, and then he creates by filling, forms and fills. So he makes time, then he gets night and day, sky you get birds, land you get animals, Water, you get fish. See, you're so smart. This narration, as the authors are inviting us to understand who this God is and bringing us into the questions of who and why, lays out God's creative work, forms and fills. Can you hear slightly the echo of Jesus who says in our lives and in the church both individually and corporately and institutionally, he forms, he makes new wineskins because then he's going to fill it with wine. Oh, you're so smart. You barely need me up here. So it's, it's the questions and the answers are profound. The structure is beautiful. Then the narration builds to two peaks. Now maybe you got caught up in the beauty of Richard and Caroline's voices and you might not have caught this, so let's try to catch it together. There are two pinnacles of creation in this story. Can you guess the first pinnacle, the first peak of what God's doing? That light Good guess, huh? It's you. The beauty of what's happening as God creates is male and female is the first peak. You. Now you're probably sitting here going, "This old thing." I mean, not me. Yes, you. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. You are the pinnacle. For the women in the room, when we get to Genesis two, to be honest, you're ahead of us. There's only this many verses that describe the creation of man. There're this many verses that describe the creation of woman. Dang straight. Woo. That's a Hebrew word for great. (laughs) In the ancient Near East, a king would build a a garden to himself or to a god, and the last thing you would put, the pinnacle of the garden, will be an image of the god of the king as the most beautiful, most important part of the garden. In this text written in the ancient Near East, God is building his garden, and the last thing he puts in as a representation of himself created in his image, is you and me. That is an unbelievable sense of dignity. It's also an unbelievable sense of responsibility because you and I are supposed to then care for the world as he does, not to use it for our own ends, but to steward it that it will flourish. There are about 12 different sermons in that last paragraph. This again is Walter Brueggemann. We attest to the goodness of God by exercising freedom and authority over all the other creatures entrusted to our care. The image of God in the human person is a mandate of power and responsibility, but it's power to be exercised to help things flourish under proper constraints and purpose. So the first peak is you. If you came here this morning and you don't know your value or who you are, when we say you are created in the image of the living triune God, it should fill you up a bit and then probably tr- drive you to your knees a little bit. It's stunning. Everyone you see today is created in the image, whether they know it or not. You're the first peak. What do you think the second peak is in this creation era? It's time. It's time. And what kind of time? It's rest. Sabbath. What we're doing now. Praying and playing. Sabbath. There are two peaks. Man, woman, boy, and girl, and time. Rest. Sabbath is the second peak. Why is rest important? This is the fourth point about Genesis one I give some practicals this last organizing comment, why is rest important? Remember, this narrative, when it was written, stood in contrast to other narratives about how the world was made and how people could orient. There are always competing narratives throughout history to the narrative of Yahweh and Jesus. In those narratives, lots of times, people are made from violence or war or they had to die so the gods can come alive and very often they're invited into being slaves to make the gods happy. Their time does not have rest. You and I are made in the image of God. That is who and why you and I are made. And invited into a relationship with Him, but birthed into life, given responsibility, but not enslaved. And matter of fact, God says, hey, I'm going to rest. You're going to rest. It's so important that when he frees us as slaves after 400 years in Egypt and he gives us 10 commandments, what's he stitched into one of the 10? Oh, the same thing. Sabbath comes back. Because you are not a slave. You were not created to be a slave. You're not created to be God's slave. You're created to be in relationship and worship and play and fun and purpose with him. Genesis, Genesis one, and then Genesis four, four characteristics from this text to inform our summer in these weeks going forward. You will hear in these things that I've said in different sermons, and Johnny said different sermons and some of your other favorite preachers have said different sermons because they're so fundamental and they are stitched and baked into this chapter. First, here in Genesis 1, we see that God's creation brings order versus chaos. That's what's happening in those first couple verses. Order versus chaos. The Hebrew is tohu v'bohu. There's There's chaos in the world and God comes in and he forms it and he fills it which gives us insight into the work of God. God always brings order out of chaos. So as you think of your summer, is there a place in your life where you would like God to bring more order, to know you or to know yourself? There's so many ways that could be happening in this room. Maybe it's vocational chaos. Maybe it's family chaos. Maybe it's mental stress, mental anxiety, mental health chaos. Maybe it's physical chaos. This morning, could you come as we come to communion and say, Lord, here, would you you use this text and what we do this summer to bring order into this place of chaos in my life? Maybe it's something from your past. Because God's invitation to you here is I will bring order. That's what I do. Remember, God creates. The verb in Hebrew is only used for God, this type of creation. Only God in the Old Testament, this verb is given to. But the, the creator, what the classic way we understand this is the creator creates creation. That's often how it's theologically taught. That's decisive because what it asserts is that God does something and then he continues to care for the creation. There's never, this is Walter Brueggemann again, the subject separated from the object, object, So put your name in this. God creates and put your name in there. The biblical understanding, the Genesis understanding, the Genesis one understanding is that God created you and there he's utterly dedicated to you in his creation. There's never a separation of subject and object. So take comfort, offer to God your chaos this summer. Second, God's creation brings life from words. God's creation brings life from words. They bless. That would be another good sermon to think about. What, is the, what does it mean that there's blessing happening here? How many times do I hear that word in this text? The value of words here, the dignity and power ascribed to them is dramatic. And I think it's often we take for granted. You and I speak because God speaks and create us in his, his image. That means the ability to speak is sacred and holy and from heaven. Having the ability to speak is a gift from heaven and the words we have been given are to bless. Hope you catch that again in the reading. God does not take a staff and touch things, animals, fish, no, he speaks, and life comes from his words. His words literally bring life. The call to us is given in words. Think about again, John 1. With John 1, you should, this week would be an interesting thing. John 1 was meant to be an echo of Genesis 1. You can hear it in some of what I'm doing here and what we're here, seeing here. God's works, God's words speak life into being. What does John 1 say Jesus is? He is the blank become blank, the word become flesh. God had already done that before. God's words were making flesh centuries before Jesus came. Now it's coming God in the flesh. So I want you to think again about your summer in two things. First, think about is there someone in your life that you know that's what they are for you? They speak blessing and life into your life. I hope you all have somebody like that. If you do, would would you make time this week to thank them? Thank you for being that means of grace in my life. Then, more personally, would you think about your words for a second? Would you like to be that kind of person to somebody this summer? Someone, someone who says, you know, this, this experience, this relationship, this work encounter, they lived out, they're being created in the image of God by speaking life and blessing over and into me. Everybody here, to raise your hand this summer if you think you will interact with people this summer. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're excited and looking forward to that. All the introverts are like, dude, I never raise my hand. But, but raise your hand again, you've been given power and responsibility an opportunity to witness as God's image in the garden to be people who bless with their words. It's powerful. This summer again, as you come to communion, would you offer God maybe your words? Maybe that's the particular thing you bring this morning. Could bring your chaos, could bring your words. Third, God's creation doesn't just bring order or life And blessing, God's creation also brings life from nothing. Ex nihilo, that's the Latin. Think again to the question I asked you before we started. How many of you can make something? How many of you can make chocolate chip cookies? Oatmeal cookies? Gingerbread men? My address will be on the screen. Bring them by. It's a personal favorite. If you were gonna create something, this thing I asked to read, how many, many of you would need things to be able to do that, to create? Tools, seeds, water, ingredients. Just raise your hand if you need something to be able to make something else. How many of you could make something out of nothing? Next week, you can come to Johnny and go, Johnny, I made you nothing cookies, here, right? Because I, I didn't have, right? Okay, now, raise your internal hand. You don't have to do it up so we can see it, but your internal hand, if you're here this morning and you're feeling like, you know, what I have to bring to God this summer is nothing. I got zip, zero. And again, raise your internal hand so God can see it if you think it's not enough. Because if that's what you believe, you're wrong. Because what this text says is God creates from nothing. You could come to God this morning during communion and say, I got nothing. And God would say, great. I got that. I love that. I love to work with nothing. You should see what I can do with nothing. order, words that bless, life from nothing, and then lastly, God's creation, of course, happens from community. Let us make man and woman in our image. God is community. The reason you and I long for community is not something you long for and look at God and say, give me this. You long for community because God said, I made you like myself. It's the best way to thrive and be fully human. And I know there's people here who feel lonely. You can go to any place you go today, any restaurant, any store, any meeting, any sport event, There are lonely people there. And they're lonely because they're longing to live the way God made us to live. We'll cover the fall later in the summer. But of course, that's a consequence of the fall. Our relationships are broken. We've talked about that before. We talked about some last summer. You and I are created to be in relationship. So again, as you come this morning, longing for more courage, longing to live with faith and joy in the world when even your immediate historical experience says it couldn't be true would you come to God and say, Lord, I, I, I need community. Would this summer, would you help me find deeper community in this church? Maybe some of you, because we're all made differently, it's amazing parts of who God is. You realize God could be extrovert or introvert? He's both, he's all of those. So you could come as an introvert and say, Lord, it's hard for me even to be in people. I don't, this guy's making me raise my hand, I hate that. I, if we do the pass the peace, I wanna crawl under a chair. But I, but I still long for a relationship, and it's hard for me to open up. Lord, help me this summer because of how I'm made to find community in some way. Give me courage to, to, to initiate and open up. Maybe you're an extrovert and you'd be like, I love community. I, I had a, a, someone who worked for me years ago who was a hyper extrovert. And so you'd send them some away, like your staff team, to go be on their own. For, like, we're going to go be with God on your own or go back. And he would want to go do it with somebody else. Hey, what do you learn about God? I want to talk about what I'm learning about God. He couldn't do it. He loved people so much. Maybe you're here this morning, that's you. What a gift. Maybe you could say, Lord, give me eyes when we gather this summer on how I can initiate and build community with somebody, how I can be that person who bridges the gap. Again, this text is a pastoral gift from the authors, divine and human, that you might grow encouraged to live as God intended you to live. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we we don't deserve this stunning piece of work so purposely crafted to invite us to you. It is a lavish gift to us, and it spills over with your love for us. There's so much power and richness, Lord, on a personal today level, not millennium ago, but right now. We ask that these words for folks who might need to be blessed and drawn to you, particularly for those of us who might feel like we have nothing to bring to you. Thank you, Lord, that we can just open ourselves up and say, we have nothing, but we cry that you would make life in us and through us. Anoint this summer. Anoint all the men and women and boys and girls in this rich community as they come to you and look at this book. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.
3: As we respond to that word um, of encouragement from Genesis 1, we're going to go back into King of Kings, um, just singing the first couple of verses, which you know jumps ahead a little bit in the story of, of Christ coming, but um, kind of that fulfillment of creation and kind of redeeming back to that beginning. So just invite you to sing with us, lift your hearts up to the Lord, or just um, meditate in response. In the darkness we were waiting